What is God like? What has God done? Nothing can be more important for you today than to have a clear understanding of what God is like and what he has done. And an ability to be able not only to understand it, but perhaps also to explain it to other people. And in this context, we're going to come and look at the words of John chapter 3, verse 16. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible. So many people in churches can quote this. Sometimes we need to come and look at what is very familiar and look at it carefully and closely that we might break up the ground once more and have a fresh understanding of what God has said to us. So we come to our text, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave of his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This text has, has been described as the whole Bible in miniature. For everything is really summarized in these few short words. We, we notice there that the text begins, uh, For God so loved the world. Everything is built upon this foundation that God has acted. The whole of scripture we go back to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created. The whole of scripture is founded on what God has done. The whole of the teaching of salvation is founded on what God has done. For God so loved the world. Jesus had been explaining to, Dick, to Nicodemus the need for the new birth. And the whole of the new birth, being born again of the Holy Spirit, is possible because God has acted. God has done something. So beyond our comprehension. But something so practical. And so completely and utterly necessary. For God. So loved the world. And you can work your way through the Old Testament. And you can see that not only did God create see that it was all very good but when Adam sinned and rebelled and hid himself because he was guilty and filled with that sense of shame he had suffered that spiritual death, that separation from God his creator what happened? 
The Lord God came and called unto Adam. Wherefore art thou? He came in grace. Adam was hiding. Adam had tried to make his own covering out of the fig leaves. But God came. God came to convict him of his sin. And then God came and promised. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. Who would gain the complete and total and utter victory. Where Adam had failed miserably. One would come who would defeat the enemy. Who would defeat Satan. But then we read that the Lord God provided skins for their clothing from animals that had been killed for the purpose. God in his grace Provided a covering. As you move forward through the scriptures. You can see again and again and again. God acted. God did something. God was gracious. God was filled with love. Even at the time of the flood. What happened? God told Noah to build an ark. Even when Noah and the animals were in the ark. What did God do? He left the door open for an extra seven days. Why? So that anyone who wanted to be saved could be saved. They didn't, so they weren't. But God had left the door open. That was an act of grace. For God, so of the world. We must see this as foundational in everything that we look at in the scriptures. But then we see, for God so loved the world, we see, we see the love of God. In English we, we have this word love and it can mean all sorts of things. But in the Greek, there's more than one word for love. And each word has a particular meaning, a particular circumstance in which it is used. Here the word is agape. It could have been the word filio. Well, it couldn't have been, because that means a sort of brotherly love. Think of the city of Philadelphia. That's a city of brotherly love. That's the, the, the common love that the brothers have one for another. There's, there's some connection. There's something that draws them mutually together. But, the, but this word agape is it's totally transcendent, totally beyond that. This is a selfless love. A love where there is no need of something lovable in the one who is loved. And so it is with God. When he looks upon us, he does not see something in us. He does not see something in you. 
that is attractive. He doesn't see your good works and think, I'll reach down and love that person. What does the scripture say? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All all the, the best things that we try to do are corrupted, are dirty, are filthy. They're totally and utterly and completely unacceptable unto God. This is the love that God has. What do we read? Romans chapter 5 and the 8th verse. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is agape love. Unmerited, undeserved. The love of God. This is not some sense of emotional response. Some hope of a romantic dream. This is a decision of the will to love. To love without precondition. Agape love, the love of God. The love of God which is seen in this wondrous salvation which has been wrought. And we can think in this context of the words of Christ. Matthew chapter 5 and the 44th verse. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Is this not what the Lord Jesus Christ prayed on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When God looks upon this world, when God sees you in your natural condition, what does he see? A rebel. Somebody whose focus is on self. Someone who is unable to do anything for God's glory. But It is these very enemies who God has loved. We should be filled with a a sense of reverence and awe when we think of the love of God. It's beyond our comprehension. How God could could love sinners like us. You know that this love of God was 
was not limited just to one group of people. The Old Testament scriptures as we have them were given to the nation of Israel. Were given unto the Jews in Jesus' day. And there was a sense that some of them had that this made them special and unique. We read in John chapter 8, verse 33, some who, who Christ had been speaking to, and they said to him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? They thought that because Abraham had been given particular promises and they had the scriptures and so forth, such a rich heritage of blessing, that they were okay. But Jesus had to make clear to them they could not rely upon their natural inheritance. They could not rely upon the fact that they had been brought up with the scriptures. It was to be a matter of personal faith. It was to be something that wasn't limited to the nation. So we see here, for God so loved the world. The love of God was not tied to some geographic region, some ethnic heritage, some genetic inheritance. It's not bound by riches or poverty. We here are included within the scope of this verse because God so loved the world. This is good news. This is why even back in the days of Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, why was he hesitant? Because he said he didn't want to announce judgment. Because he knew that if the people repented, God would be merciful to them. And he saw that the enemies would escape the judgment. God's mercy, God's love is not limited to one people. God's love is for a worldwide proclamation. We need to anew to comprehend the greatness of God's love. God's love, secondly, is shown in His gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is no ordinary gift. 
This is a unique giving. We are trailing upon holy ground when we think of this. The Son, the only begotten, the eternal generation, the second person of the Trinity. This is an area in which there's much confusion that has crept into the church in modern days. There are those that are very popular, especially on certain TV channels and such like. But they've gone astray on the doctrine of the Trinity, of the person of Christ. We have to be careful. One God, three persons. The eternal sonship of Christ. John chapter 3 here is a, a Trinitarian passage. We see as we look Back up through the chapter at the fifth verse and the sixth verse, uh, the fifth verse, yes. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we have the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the 16th verse, we have the work of the Son who was given. And at the start of that verse, when we read, For God is so loved, we must conclude that this is the Father who gave. The wonder of the Godhead. The glory of the giving. (coughs) It's beyond our comprehension to think of giving a son for those who are vile and corrupt and undeserving. It's beyond our comprehension when you think of the relationship of the Godhead. One God, three persons. Hear the cry upon the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That great cry of dereliction. As darkness was upon the face of the earth. As the sun bore that outpouring of wrath because the sin of his people was laid upon him. The greatness of the love of God is shown in the gift of the only begotten Son. There's something, just, just a little something of this brought out for us in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis. In that chapter we have Abraham and his son Isaac. 
And in the second verse we read, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. This is the son of promise. This is the son from whom the promised seed would come. In whom all the world would be blessed. But he was told to give. To give that son as an offering. And you read down through. And it's a very sobering passage to read it. And at the end of the seventh verse we read. The words of Isaac. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said my son. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. We see there not only the obedience of Abraham, but we see the submission of the son. When Christ went to Calvary, he did so voluntarily. He wasn't forced to go through all that cruel treatment. He wasn't forced to hang upon that cross as men reviled him. He wasn't forced. To bear the outpoured wrath due upon our sin. He did it with complete submission. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Isaac was delivered from that sacrifice. It had been a test of Abraham's faith. It had been a type of Christ at Calvary. But Isaac was delivered because there was a substitute to die in his place. And even that very substitute speaks of Christ. What was it John the Baptist said? John 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. When we look at John 3.16 we must think we must think of God. We must think 
of his great love, we must think of his love shown in his gift. What Christ has done. But then, we must see that the verse doesn't end there. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So our third point must be, what about you? Will you perish? Will you be saved? As we look at this verse, we see the word whosoever. Whosoever believeth. This is a great word of opportunity. For you to come and believe. To see your need of a saviour. Your need of forgiveness. Your need of reconciliation with the holy God, your creator. It's a word of warning. Because if you do not, this verse 18 makes clear, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This word, whosoever, is a great word. If you will come and believe, you will be saved. But it's also a word of division, a word of warning. Because if you will not, you will perish. And this is an eternal perishing, an eternal separation from God, from Christ. A lost eternity. popular doctrine today, but it is what the scripture teaches. <coughs> but we can rejoice and be thankful. For Christ came not into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. And this is good news. We don't deserve it. But he came to save. He said, didn't he? I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And whosoever believeth shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a contrast. Everlasting life. Communion with God. The absence of sin. No more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Christ came to Calvary because of God's love. Christ came to save whosoever shall believe in him. Will you believe today? Do you believe? Do you see your need? 
Will you turn in repentance? Crying out unto God for mercy, deliverance. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. You see, it's a gift. It's a free gift. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. In fact, any thought of payment is an insult unto God, unto the finished work of Christ. It's really saying you don't need the gift. This is a gracious gift for Christ has finished the work. It is complete. You are called upon simply to trust, simply to believe. As Paul and Silas told the jailer at Philippi, (laughs) Acts chapter 16, the 34th verse, and they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved on thy house. Amen.